Let us pray. O most gracious Father, pour out your Spirit upon us and come to be with us that we would more and more be changed into the likeness of your Son, that we would know the truth of dying to ourselves and ourselves being put to death and the new man, the new self, being raised up as Christ has been raised up. Grant us, O Lord, to know you more fully and more deeply through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Over the course of this week, I've spent a huge amount of time reading commentaries and trying to think about this passage from, from Romans chapter 6. During this time, we're focusing on the book of Romans for a little while because we have a lot of continual readings hitting up chunks of various of the chapters all in a row, and so we've been sitting down to focus on these passages. In one of the commentaries I was reading this week, as I was trying to think about how to open my sermon up, um, it struck me, an example that the author gave. He started talking about King Henry V. I don't know if you've ever read the plays by Shakespeare. King Henry IV, Part I, King Henry IV, Part II, and then King Henry V. I've never read them. I've watched the movie that was made on King Henry V years and years ago, and it was a wonderful movie, a phenomenal movie depicting this play. But one of the characters goes through a number of changes during that time. His name is Prince Hal. If you know the story, you know who Prince Hal is right now. I'll tell you in a couple moments who he ends up being. During the first two plays in this series of plays, Prince Hal is just kind of a drunkard. He just kind of runs around and does whatever he wants. He lives like you would expect an unrighteous prince to live. He does whatever he wants because he's the king's son. He's the oldest king's son. And he's going to do what he wants. He hangs out with all the wrong people. He does all the wrong things. But then as the play progresses, something happens. Though Prince Hal refuses during most of these first two plays of Henry IV, Part One and Two, to embrace his identity, by the end of the second play there, he finally embraces his identity as his father dies and he becomes King Henry V, who the next play is all about, about him ruling over the people and understanding what it means to be a king who dies to self and takes care of his people, guards his people, and protects them. You see, over the course of those plays, Hal becomes Henry. He grows up, he lays hold of the identity that was his by birth. He lays hold of the identity that has been bestowed upon him by being related to the king, by being the first son of the king. But early on, he refuses that identity. He just wants all the benefits that come with that identity, but not the responsibilities and the changes that it requires him to commit to in his life. But then he finally changes. He finally chooses to embrace that identity, realizing that for him to truly be a good king, he has to care about the others. He has to care about his people. And so he abandons his old life. He abandons his old ways, his old behaviors, as his father is dying. And he tells him, that's not who I am anymore. I'm not going to do those things now that I'm becoming king, now that I will be king. His father is able to die peacefully, knowing that the king 
will be a good one, that his son will become a good king, following the path that a good king has to follow, putting the kingdom before his own wants and desires, putting the kingdom before all of his even needs in order to support the kingdom, in order to support the people. And so that's what we begin seeing in this passage today. We see this shift of identities. We see a shift in how we are called to live and how we are called to think about ourselves and how we are called to understand ourselves. In chapter 5, Paul has been talking about the gloriousness of the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us as it brings justification to us that Christ died while we were sinners and he was raised that we might have life, that we might experience salvation. While we were still weak, Christ died in order to bring about our redemption. But Christ does so much more than just overcome our individual sins. He overcomes the one sin of Adam that condemned the entire human race. He overcame the one sin of Adam that cursed us to be sinners, that leads us to commit all the sins that we have committed and will continue committing. He overcomes that sin and the sin nature itself. And then Paul reminds us that God gave the law in order to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. It doesn't cause the trespass to increase. It simply reveals it more and more. It opens our eyes to the reality of our sinfulness. But Paul comforts us by saying where, grace, where sin increased, grace superabounded. Grace overcame. Grace grew greater and greater to overcome what was once our identity in order that we might embrace the identity that is in Christ. And so grace reigns through Jesus Christ for us. And so here at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul shifts gears. He begins thinking about how do people respond to this idea that grace abounds over against sin. He starts off by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That seems like a logical conclusion, doesn't it? That if sin increased, grace superabounds, then let's keep sinning so that we can experience the superabundance of God's goodness and mercy toward us. But that's not how it works. Paul cries out, by no means. We don't keep on sinning in order that grace can abound. That's not who you are now. And Paul begins talking about this outside of you perspective. He talks about how the grace of God, how the work of God, how the work of Christ comes to us from the outside. It is something that is experienced from the exterior, brought onto us. In verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you know that if you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Jesus' death? If you've been baptized, you were baptized into him. You were placed in him. And there's a mystery there. There's some type of strange connection, a sacramental one that we can't fully grasp and understand because we're finite creatures. But nonetheless, God has attached promises to the act of baptism. He's attached his promises to this experience of having water poured on you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To give us an outside of us moment, to give us an outside perspective, an objective something that we can cling to. 
that we can look at and say, that applies to me because it's not something I've done. It's something God has done to me. Baptism happens to you. It's done to you. It's something that is done to you, not something you do to yourself. Even if you choose to be baptized, it's not something you do to yourself. Someone else always baptizes you. Thus, this death that Paul speaks of in baptism isn't something that you do to yourself either. The death is something that comes from outside and is applied to you by the water, by the word of God, by the promises of God, by the calling of the Holy Spirit through that water and that word. Again, it's something that happens to you. It's the extra nos of the gospel, that outside of you, that objective aspect. That's something that comes to be placed on you despite who you are. And just as Prince Hal was going to be king no matter what he did, yet he didn't act like it. It was placed on him. It was something from outside of him that was given to him, that was put upon him and calling him out of himself, calling him away from what he was on the inside. And that is what baptism does to us. It puts us into the death of Christ by putting us to death. It unites us to him. It connects us to him mysteriously and begins working in us that is objective promises of God. Being baptized doesn't prove you're good enough to earn Jesus' righteousness. It means you're incapable of earning it. Being baptized means that you eventually have to admit that everything inside of me is warped and broken and turned away from who Jesus is. And we realize that Christ wanted to die, that he might give us that gift of new life. But our eyes have to be opened, and part of the way that that happens is through baptism itself, through baptism being done to us, setting us apart and being reminded of that baptism, being pointed out that you are baptized. And it's a mysterious act where his promises and spirit come to you, that objective moment when everything else that might point you away from God, baptism points you to God. It points you to the proof that he is at work. It's where the Father has claimed you and laid hold of you. And if he's laid hold of you and put you to death through baptism, he does it for a purpose. He does it to raise us back to life. Again, this is outside of us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we can accomplish on our own. It's something that God does to us through that act of baptism, through the work of the Spirit in us, through his word being applied to us over and over continually. He calls us into life. He gives us true newness of life, that we might walk in newness of life, giving you the grace that you didn't know you needed, breaking the reign of sin over you, breaking that authority, that control, that power of sin, pushing and prodding and forcing you to do what it wants. Now, of course, you die to sin in baptism, and you have to live out that baptism, continually dying every day to that sin within. But objectively, sin's power is broken over you. It no longer reigns because you died with Christ. It's something that's been done to you, that was happening, that has happened to you. Jesus gives his work to us to be received, to be changed. And when we see this outside of you perspective, when we see this outside of me thing that God has done, this gift and this goodness, we realize that what's broken inwardly can be healed. 
That means that which is outside of you has an inward effect, has an inward effect and an inward effect on all of who we are. We're given new life. We're given newness of life in Jesus through that mysterious act of baptism. And of course, some would be thinking that makes baptism something magical, doesn't it? But it doesn't. It makes it sacramental. It makes it the outward visible sign of what God is doing to you. That's connected to his grace. That if you receive the outward, the inward comes to you to be received. It's the marker that we can look back to in our doubts, in our struggles, in our sinfulness. We can look back and cry out, God has saved me and made me his own. I know it because he's baptized me. He made me his own through that. I have a place where my faith and trust can rest knowing that God claimed me. And I can look to Jesus because I know that what he did applies to my particular life. It applies to me in particular, not just in a general kind of way of Jesus died for the sins of the world, but that Jesus died for me. And as you receive this outward reality of the work of Christ, and you trust that those promises are truly yours, then this outside reality changes your inward reality. It brings you to see the inside of you aspect that now Paul turns to. In verses 5 through 9, he talks about this inside of you perspective. And of course, the outside of you is threaded through it. And so we have to see how this all comes out. Paul continues, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, that outward death brings an inward death. And the outward resurrection brings an inward resurrection. We've been planted with him in his death. We'll certainly be united and planted with him in a resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, justification here, we like to think of that forensic aspect, that aspect of the declaration that you're not guilty. But justification is more than just being told you're not guilty. God performs a work inside of you when he gives you that outside of you word. He transforms you because in declaring you not guilty and uniting you to Christ in baptism and connecting you to that death of Christ, you're given the newness of life. You're given a resurrection that is like his. The old man, the old self is put to death. So justification isn't merely this totally forensic act that doesn't bring anything else with it. It brings transformation. It brings change. God doesn't leave us as sinners. He makes us saints when he justifies us, when he claims us as his own, when he baptizes us into Jesus' death and resurrection. He transforms us when he brings us into that right relation with himself through Jesus. Inwardly, we're changed. The old man, the old self is crucified in order to bring the body of sin to nothing so that we wouldn't be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Here, of course, any reference talk of the resurrection is two-sided. There's a right now, right here aspect of it, and there's that future full resurrection. 
the full bodily resurrection, and they get intertwined with each other in Paul's writings. Here, as he talks about the one who has died being raised and living with him, is here and now and in the future. If we die, we're set free from sin. That is the power, that is the reign, I should say, of sin. Not that sin won't lead us into more sin. Sin is still part of our old man, still part of our body, still part of our struggles here on earth. Sin continues to exist in us. But through our death, through our resurrection in Jesus, we've died to that sin. We've died to the sin nature because the old self is put to death in crucifixion and the new self is raised in new life. If we've died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. In the here and now, we live with Christ. Each day we walk alongside him, we walk with him, he walks with us. As we draw near, as we reflect, as we remember, as we recall the reality of our death and resurrection, of his death and resurrection, he is with us. The Spirit dwells in us, poured into our hearts, as Paul told us in chapter 5. Poured into us in order to continue to put to death that old self and to raise into new life that new self. The inside of us is changed by the outside of us. It doesn't work the other way around. It's not that we find the power within that we find our identity within us, that we come to life. It's that we find something outside of us. Something outside of us finds us and lays hold of us and changes the inside of us by telling us the truth, by telling us of the death and resurrection of Christ, of bringing that death and resurrection to us. And it transforms us inwardly because it puts us to death. And by slaying us, it sets us free from that sin, from that reign of sin and death over all of creation that reigns over us individually. And here and now, we'll still sin. We'll still give in to its sway. We'll still give in to its power. We'll still live blind lives. And that's why we continually have to keep this outside of us in front of us. We have to continue to keep the death and resurrection of Jesus in front of us, reminding us of what God has done for us. We don't look within at our changes. We don't look within at how we're living or how good we're being or how faithful we're being. We keep looking toward Jesus. We have to look toward him because he is the origin of the change within. He comes from the outside to the inside of us. And Paul tells us, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ's death means he can't die anymore. Being raised from the dead once, he will live forever now. And we're called to live in that very resurrection. We're called to believe that we have died and that we are raised. And Paul brings us to the outside, inside you. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In verse 11, so now you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin. Treat yourself as though you're dead. 
recognize that you're dead. And you will live in, before Jesus. You will live in Christ Jesus. That word consider is the same word Paul uses throughout chapter 4. He uses that word over and over and over when he talks about how God considered Abraham righteous. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. Counted to Abraham. God considered Abraham. He reckoned him. He treated him as righteous and transformed him in the process of that. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. It doesn't feel like we're dead. It doesn't seem like we're dead a lot of moments. But nonetheless, we reckon ourselves dead because of that outside of us. We treat our inward parts as having died in Christ because Christ has died for us and that has been applied to us through baptism and through the word. No matter what it feels like, even though sin still gets the better of us, even though our sinful bodies, that sin nature within still takes the lead at times. Consider yourself dead, Paul tells us. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is living from the outside to the inside. Looking to the death of Christ and his resurrection, meaning he can never die again, and receiving it and it changing us on the inside and then turning our eyes outwardly and considering that change complete, living in the completeness of Christ's work for us, living in the completeness of his renewal and his transformation. You see, when Paul spoke of the revealing of sin by the giving of the law, he wasn't saying that, sin, that the law caused us to sin, like I said earlier. But it opens our eyes to that reality. With the law, with baptism, with the word of God, that old man is slain. He is put to death that the new man would rise, that the new self would come into being, that he would come and rule over us in Jesus in order that Jesus would rule over us. And that is where we are right now, the new man rising to life as we hear the word proclaimed, as we hear the word given to us, as we read this word. Christ died for you. Consider yourself dead, therefore, in Christ, in order to consider yourself alive to God in Christ. It's all in Christ. Our identity is bound up to Christ. He gives us a new identity that takes us away from that old self. He places that new identity on us in order to destroy the old identity. And we're called to walk in newness of life in that identity that is Christ, that is in Christ, that is connected to Christ, that is bound up to Christ. We're not called to walk in the old self anymore. We're called to walk in the new self. And that new self is a free gift. It's given by God in Jesus Christ to us. And so we can receive it. And so may we receive that gift. May we receive that new self. May we recall the baptism that put us into death and brought us into resurrection. May we consider the giving of the Holy Spirit in that moment to be at work in us and pray for him to continue to work in us, to open our eyes more and more to what Christ has done for us. And our collect of the day that we'll pray a little bit later 
We ask that God would put away from us all harmful things and give us those things that are profitable for us. Think about that prayer. What is profitable for us? Is it to be given all the easy, good things in our lives? Or are those things actually the harmful things? Is it that we have to go through the struggle of death and resurrection over and over again in order to completely put to death that old self, to continue putting it to death? He's been slayed that we might not be enslaved anymore, and we're free from that sin now. But if we get to thinking that those things that are profitable is the easy life for us, then we'll let that sin start creeping back in and taking over again. But the things that are most profitable for us is God slaying us over and over, which means he'll lead us to recognize sin more and more. He'll bring things to us that force us to trust him more and more because he wants us to. He wants us to experience that newness of life, that peace that he has given to us. So sometimes the most profitable things that come to us are the most hurtful and hard things we experience because it's putting me to death. It's slaying me more and more so that I can experience and walk in newness of life. That I would know that it is all about Christ's resurrection in me that keeps me sustained and keeps me alive. That which is profitable will draw me into God's arms, will draw me into Christ more and more and renew me more and more and give me new life more and more to walk and to know Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.